it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, October the 10th, 2022, a brand new broadcast week. Underway here on The Guy Benson Show, I am your host, Guy Benson, every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time, right here. If you can't listen as we air for the whole show, we do prefer that, but if not, that's okay. There's a podcast. It is free of charge when the show is over, on demand, every single day. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. You can also follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram, including, I think we posted video of my appearance earlier on Fox News Channel talking about the midterm elections. If you want to see that clip, it is at Guy Benson Show on our Twitter feed. I'm the political editor at townhall.com, a Fox News contributor, and very thrilled and honored, as always, to have you guys here with me as part of this radio family. We are busy today. We will start later this hour with Jason Rance, our buddy from the Pacific Northwest on crime and a few other issues as well with Jason. Britt Hume will be here on the midterm elections coming up in our middle hour. I also have a story in the middle hour that I want to read from at length, a New York Times story just tearing the cover off of California, the state of California, and one of their most glaring, embarrassing, ongoing failures. And I am actually going to relish the opportunity to have that conversation with you here. You don't want to miss that. And then in our final hour, General Jack Keane will be my guest. Some huge developments over the weekend and then today in Ukraine. A bridge, crucial bridge, connecting Russia to Ukraine, Crimea, which Russia says belongs to them but doesn't. That was sabotage. Part of it was blown up on Saturday as a real blow to Vladimir Putin and his ego Symbolically, I think not coincidentally, it happened on Putin's birthday. And then Putin, being the murdering thug that he is, retaliated by killing a bunch of civilians today in a series of rocket attacks around Ukraine, including in Kiev, the capital city. General Keene will be here to tell us all about those details and what it means for the wider conflict. So an extremely busy and involved show ahead on today's Guy Benson show. I wanted to start with a slightly more perhaps frivolous topic, although not really. The person featured in the topic is frivolous. The topic itself is not. The aforementioned person is the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris. The decidedly non-frivolous topic is the border crisis. So on Friday's show, when we were still out at Stanford doing a week-long program session there in a fellowship where we were at the Hoover Institution. One of our guests on Friday was Congressman Tony Gonzalez, a Republican down in Texas. He represents one of the border districts down there. And we talked to him about the fact that it was announced recently, somewhat recently, that the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, was going to travel down to Texas for a series of events. So Congressman Gonzalez and some other people I saw, including Senator John Cornyn, 
were suggesting that perhaps while she's in Texas, since you're in the neighborhood, Madam Vice President, and you are at least technically still the border czar in charge of the border crisis, maybe just hop on the chopper and go a little further. I know liberal Austin is where she was headed to raise a bunch of money, but just go a little deeper into Texas, down to the border, and maybe assess it for yourself. She had resisted going to the border for months. You remember some of those embarrassing answers that she would give when asked, why haven't you gone to the border? Are you going to go to the border? She's like, well, I haven't been to Europe. I'm not going today. And then she would, ah, ha, ha, she'd always laugh awkwardly. Then she finally got shamed, basically, into going to El Paso, which was far away from the epicenter of the crisis, certainly at the time, although El Paso has had its hands full recently. Right? No border community is immune from this. She was down there for like a nanosecond, a box-checking, perfunctory performance, just to say that, yes, I've gone through the ritual, I've been there, and now I can stop thinking about it. That's what she did. Still better than Biden. The president has not been down to the border by the White House's own admission in about a decade and a half. His policies have created and turbocharged this humanitarian crisis, this disgrace to our national sovereignty, the public safety and national security issues all playing out at the border. He's responsible chiefly because he's the guy at the top. And he absolutely cannot be bothered to go down there. She at least sort of pretended once. But over the weekend, because we heard from Gonzalez that he was not getting a response from the vice president's office. Cornyn was tweeting about her official itinerary and her schedule that they had posted publicly. No mention of the border. There was some effort to get her down there. Didn't happen. She parachuted into Austin, did an abortion-related event where they talked about abortion rights, and then she went to a Democratic fundraiser. And those two things are basically indistinguishable these days. An abortion festival and a Democratic fundraiser, it's a sort of one and the same at this stage, sadly. And then she was out. The border czar not only did not go to the border while she was in Texas, the state most impacted by the crisis that her administration is presiding over and causing through their policies, based on the reporting that I have read, over the course of those two events that she attended and spoke at, she did not even mention the border or immigration once. Was not mentioned. See no evil, hear no evil. We're here to talk about abortion on demand. In the state of Texas, we are not here to talk about the border crisis, which is, again, theoretically in her portfolio as vice president of the United States. We have talked ad nauseum about the border crisis. At this point, you can probably recite back to me some of the statistics, and these statistics are astounding. At least they should be. I refuse to be inured to these numbers. To not be shocked at a million known gotaways, two million apprehensions in a single year, of which hundreds and hundreds of thousands of those individuals are being processed and released. Now, what we got from the vice president, who was 
scrupulously avoiding that topic at all costs, was a number of sound bites that are just difficult to listen to and to watch. Because I don't know if it's a nervous tick or if she actually thinks that she's funny and entertaining, but the vice president was doing what she does. Often talking to people like they are young children, like she is this brilliant person who has to slowly explain basic things to people. And then bursting into laughter as she does as she does so over things that are. I think most of us can agree, just objectively not funny, not even really close to the line of being funny. So here's one example. She was talking at the abortion fest. In cut 30, she was going to inform the audience about the Senate filibuster. Again, she's talking to grown adults. She's not talking to first graders, but from her tone, Sometimes it's hard to tell if she's aware of that. Here's what she said in Cut 30. I'm just going to state a fact. It's not political. <laughs> it's, not an, it's not an advertisement. It's just a fact. So there's this thing in the United States Senate called filibuster. Mm-hmm. It's a library. We talk about things like facts here. Okay. <laughs> and it has been used over the years in a way that I think many of us would would agree has been used to obstruct progress. Hmm. So you're missing, of course, on radio, the context of her facial expressions. You can hear in the background the sycophantic, awkward laughter of the interviewer. But she's talking about facts and this thing called filibuster, which, of course, ironically, when she was in the Senate, she wasn't there for very long. And when she was there, she wasn't showing up for work quite as often as other people because she was busy campaigning, running for president, going to the border, actually, to denounce the Trump administration at the border. That's when she would go, right, for those photographs. Not quite as dramatic as AOC in the white pantsuit, weeping at a parking lot, but close. But when she did show up for work at the U.S. Senate, she was in the minority. The Democrats were in the minority party. And they were the ones enthusiastically, repeatedly, historically, actually, using the filibuster to obstruct progress, to use her term there, that they didn't like, including, by the way, on abortion. So she's complaining about the filibuster in the Senate as a scapegoat on the broader issue of abortion, I think just kind of ignoring or glossing over the fact that she participated in abortion-related filibusters to defeat, to obstruct, majority-supported, broadly popular abortion restrictions. You wouldn't get that from her little tutorial there to the adult audience about a thing called filibuster. And we do facts here at this library. Ha! Yeah, it's a laugh a minute over there. She also, at one point, we talked about this, what, a week or two ago, This strange fascination that she seems to have with Venn diagrams, the RNC put together more than a minute-long montage of public comments in which she, as an aside, talks about her love of Venn diagrams. Here's just a little bit of it. Cut 28. Remember Venn diagrams, those three circles? 
Right. And then let's just see where they overlap. You will not be surprised because I have constructed a Venn diagram on this. Remember those three circles, how they overlap? I love Venn diagrams. So <laughs> I just do. Whenever you're dealing with conflict, pull out a Venn diagram. Right. And so, you know, the three circles. And so I, so I, I asked my team, right? They're I'm fantastic. Out right now. They're okay, enough, 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 enough. It's too much. This, I guess, look, I've done a lot of public speaking through the years, and sometimes you sort of figure out a riff or a joke or an aside that really works well. You've read the room. You know that it's going to get a laugh or it's going to draw a response. So you sort of file it away, and at the appropriate moment, you bring it out. And if you're good at what you're doing, it gets the response that you're expecting because you've done the trial and error and you know what's coming. I think actually in her mind, this is one of her successful lines. I think in Kamala Harris brain, she's like, oh, now's the time for me to break out the Venn diagram comment because it's a hit. And I don't really know if there's great evidence to support that belief in her brain, aside perhaps from like the uncomfortable pity laugh that she might get for it. But boy, she unleashed it again over the weekend down in Texas in cut 29. Just listen to this big moment of hilarious, uproarious laughter. To your point, I early on asked my team, uh, well, let me just say, I love Venn diagrams. (laughs) (laughs) I really love Venn diagrams. You know, the circles, right? Three usually. (laughs) Oh, and then the painful laughter of just her echoing. By the way, am I crazy? Or is she also wrong about what Venn diagrams are? How many different times do we just hear her say, oh, it's the three circles usually, three? Now, isn't it two? I I really don't think I was into Venn diagrams ever, but I think it was kind of like a, a late elementary, early middle school thing. It's like, here are two circles, and they overlap to create this middle area where there's some common ground. It's two circles, right? Not three. Am I wrong about this, or is she confused even in the big, like, slam-dunk line that she loves so much that she breaks it out all over the place wherever she goes? Pretty sure it's two circles that overlap, not three. I'm happy to be corrected if I'm wrong on that point. It's just a cringe factory. She is a walking, talking, cringe factory. And perhaps that's part of the reason why, at a big glitzy fundraiser for Texas Democrats bringing in a lot of money in Austin, Texas over the weekend. Obviously, she wasn't going to go to the border or even talk about it. But guess who wasn't even in attendance? Robert Francis O'Rourke, a.k.a. Beto, who's, I'm sure, happy for that money to be raised. He just doesn't want to really be seen publicly with her, given the popularity of President Biden the administration, and her personally in the state of Texas. Sort of like, okay, you stay over there in Austin. We're all going to pretend like this isn't happening. But please do send us that check once you've got the money in your account. I saw a quote from the Republican chairman in the state of Texas about Kamala's visit that she was coming. His response was, excellent news. (laughs) 
I think we understand the dynamic at play there. The Guy Benson Show is just getting started. New day, new week. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. One more note on the border issue on a much more serious and somber note. Our colleague Bill Malugin reporting this over the weekend. There was a mass stabbing on the Las Vegas Strip that killed at least two, half a dozen more wounded in this mass stabbing incident in Las Vegas. And I always make this point when talking about illegal immigrants who commit crimes or violent crimes. I am not trying to paint with a broad brush or cast the wider illegal immigrant population as a bunch of dangerous criminals. I don't think that that's fair. Most people just want to come here and make a better life for themselves and their families. Doesn't mean they have a right to be here. They don't. We have a legal process to go through. I also don't think it should just be like, oh, well, look at all these, you know, dangerous, violent people. Vast majority, that's not true. However, when you have largely uncontrolled illegal immigration, dangerous people come too. And there is a public safety, sometimes national security component that some folks don't want to talk about. It's like, oh, no, it's xenophobic. It's problematic. Well, this stabbing in Las Vegas, just a little snapshot. According to ICE officials, the alleged assailant is a Guatemalan national in the United States illegally who had accumulated a criminal record for himself in the state of California. But ICE had no record of this 32-year-old's criminal record before he went on this homicidal stabbing spree in Las Vegas. Why is that the case? Because California is a sanctuary state. And under their self-righteous, I'd say dangerous policies, they can't share this stuff with ICE. They are trying to protect people from being deported from this country, even people who get and commit crimes and get criminal records in that state. That criminal record was hidden from the federal government to protect this guy from deportation in the sanctuary state of California. Then he went next door to Nevada and stabbed eight people. The Guy Benson Show is back after this. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you on board with us. Still to come, Britt Hume and General Jack Keene later in the program. We get to our first guest now, however. It's our friend Jason Rance, host of the Jason Rance Show on KTTH out in Seattle, Tacoma. Our great affiliate out there. Also crime correspondent for Tucker. And Jason, great to have you back. 
Thank you so much. Always, always I want to turn to talk to about cr- the craziness. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is like, I know you're crime correspondent for Tucker. I feel like you're craziness correspondent for us. <laughs> and there's never a shortage of anything to talk about. And I will get to some of the crime here in a second. Before that, though, I wonder if you have a take on this. I actually shied away from tweeting about it just because of the loss of life in Ukraine and uh, the Russian bombing today. So I just sort of stayed away from it. However, I did see, and we'll get to those details with with General Keene later, I did see this absolutely strange tweet from Randy Weingarten, of all people, the teachers union boss, who I guess is in Ukraine or near Ukraine. I guess she's maybe in Poland right now. And she was tweeting in favor of the Ukrainians, which I guess I agree with her on that. But she said, woke up this a.m. to reports of disgusting Russian missile attacks in Kiev, Lviv and other cities heading to the border now to assess the situation. And then she was uh, denouncing the Russians and talking about the importance of her trip. And I for the life of me, do not understand why Randy Weingarten should be heading anywhere near Ukraine to assess anything. And if we're worried about the well-being of children in Ukraine. I think maybe we should keep someone like Randy Weingarten as far away from them as humanly possible. Well, th- this is about Randy Weingarten, right? I mean, th- this is the worst of the worst when we think about the culture surrounding social media where someone will do something frivolous like take photos of their food because they think people care. Well, this is someone who's cheapening something that is actually significant and tragic just because she thinks it might help her brand. And I have to assume, because I was one of the people calling attention to how ludicrous this is and just frankly weird, but I'm wondering if maybe she's just getting ready to run for something, run for office outside of uh, hurting children with her union uh, responsibilities. Maybe she's deciding to run for something where potentially this matters. I I think most people are trying to figure out, A, why did you tweet this? B, why should we care? And C, why are you even anywhere close to Ukraine right now? And it's just – it's super odd. But when you're looking for attention and you're just trying to get people to talk about you, I suppose it makes a little bit of sense. Although, Jason, I must say I feel partially attacked by that answer because from time to time I do post photos of my food, especially on my Instagram story is where I typically go with that. And it's not all the time. And I actually like seeing other people's food if it's good, if it looks good and the photos are good. I'm blown away by the number of Bad, unappetizing photos I see of people's food. Sounds like you're a hard no on all of it. Instagram is different than Twitter. Instagram, you're supposed to post those things. You you properly use Instagram and Twitter, and I'd like to think I do as well. Okay. Well, okay. Now we can agree on that. I appreciate that. A very important clarification here. Before we shift to some of these crime-related issues, a very disturbing incident over the weekend in New York – where there was, I guess, some you know gunfire just outside the home of the gubernatorial nominee for the Republicans in New York, Lee Zeldin, out on Long Island, sort of a residential area. His daughters were doing homework inside the house when gunfire broke out just outside their home. He said, Zeldin did, that one of the bullets ended up landing just about 30 feet from where one of his daughters was sitting, And here's how he described what happened. This was on Fox and Friends. Lee Zeldin running for governor in New York, cut 14. 
We get a phone call from our daughter, Michaela. We hear our other daughter, Ariana, in the background crying. She's speaking to 911. They were the 911 callers. Uh, Michaela's freaking out, but we're not able to hear everything because of the, the Wi-Fi connection. They were locked inside of a bathroom. They were at the kitchen table. They were doing homework. All of a sudden, they're hearing multiple gunshots. They then hear screaming. They run upstairs, lock themselves in the bathroom. One of my daughters calls 911. The other one calls us. We just told them to stay locked down until we got uh, the clear from the Suffolk County Police Department, which did take a while. I mean, they, they responded, they secured the scene, and then we uh, told them to get out of the bathroom. Uh, but it really freaked them out. Jason, I mean, Zeldin's campaign has heavily focused on the issue of crime. There was that strange incident where he was quasi-attacked at a rally at one point. And some people said, that well, that was a little bit overblown. Well, here's gunfire right outside his house in Long Island, terrifying his his young daughters. And I don't know if we've heard anything from Kathy Hochul, the Democratic governor. We know that she doesn't want to revisit bail laws at all. She doesn't want to debate Lee Zeldin. She'd been refusing to debate him at all. I guess they got one on the books very late in the cycle. But here is crime, not just hypothetical, not just theoretical, not just some statistics, but gunshots ringing out outside this guy's house, you know, you wonder, does this type of thing maybe break through to some voters who are used to just sleepwalking through these elections and and voting blue? Could this maybe turn things a little bit? You know, I'm not naive about this, but it's it's very upsetting to see this type of thing happen. Here's the reality of the situation, not just in New York, but everywhere where crime is going up. Every single day that we don't reverse course is another day where you are effectively one step closer to becoming a victim or knowing a victim of crime. It might not be gunshots going into your home or nearby. It might be someone breaking into your car or breaking into your home. But we know that the reason why we're seeing this crime surge, we can directly point to certain policies. You can point to policies like the getting rid of cash bail in New York. Here in Washington state, we can look at the ban on most vehicular pursuits, and that's why we're seeing an increase in smash and grab robberies. We know exactly why this is happening, and we know that it's not getting any better. We talk about it a lot, but unless we change the actual policies, unless we boot out of office the people responsible, nothing is going to change. And ultimately, when it comes to issues like crime or homelessness and drug abuse, unless you are really, really close to it and experience it, if you're someone who lives in that world who's kind of blinded by everything that's going around you, and and by the way, I get that. People have lives. People have jobs. They're focused on their family. But when you go to a park that's been completely overtaken by homelessness, that's what it takes to get someone to realize the homelessness policy is out of control. So the more of these crimes that happen, the more people will find out there's a lot on the line when you aren't engaged or activated within your community. And that's a sad and, frankly, a terrifying place to be. But I do think we have we can only talk about this so much without saying, yeah, I guess people are just not listening to us. They need to experience this, what it's like in their neighborhood. And the fact of the matter is there's not a single neighborhood out there right now that is truly immune from dealing with the consequences of the defund police movement and all of the policies that went along with it. Well, and the places that are least immune and most afflicted are places that have been overwhelmingly run by one-party rule for a very long time, which is why I know you and I talked about this, I believe, last week. Governor Newsom and D.A. Krasner in Philadelphia trying to 
spin this yarn about how it's really a Republican Trump problem because some of the cities where the crime is bad are in red states, but they're run by blue officials. They're Democrat run cities. It just doesn't make sense to people. Republicans, I was actually talking about this on Fox News Channel earlier. Republicans have a double digit lead on the issue of crime because intuitively the American people understand which party has been very indulgent of criminal behavior for the last few years in particular and which party has not. So I think the spin jobs aren't going to work. And the other thing is you have some Democrats willing to say out loud what many other people are thinking as well. And you can't really blame crime surges in the New York City area on Republicans. Democrats run the show. The former governor of New York, David Patterson, a Democrat, he raised some eyebrows just, I think, yesterday when he talked about feeling unsafe in New York again in Cut 36. Listen. For the first time in my life, even in the late 80s and 90s, when the crime rate was killing 2,000 people uh, a year, I never felt as unsafe as I do now just walking around. And God forbid, uh, sometimes we take the subway home from uh, WABC and uh, you're hearing about an assault on the subway almost every other day. So that's David Patterson, the former Democratic governor of the state of New York, saying even in the worst of the worst days, pre-Giuliani you know, 70s, 80s, huge murder rate in New York City. He's never personally felt as unsafe as he does right now in New York. I mean, some people can plug their ears and close their eyes and pretend like this isn't happening. But that right there is, I would say, a statement against interest, a huge indictment of the one party leadership in that state from a member of that party. Absolutely. And I think, you know, part of the reason why he probably feels less safe now than he did in the 80s when clearly crime was through the roof. The difference between the 80s and now is crime in the 80s was kind of very, very kept into a small region. It was so, for example, when you go into Southern California in the 80s when crime was through the roof, it wasn't all across Los Angeles. It was centered in certain neighborhoods. The same thing was true in New York. But all of a sudden, right now, we're seeing this all across the the states, right? I mean, when we're talking about New York, we're not only seeing it in Manhattan. When we're talking about Washington, it's not only in Seattle, Oregon, not only in Portland. People who decided to escape some of the urban areas to to get to a safer place for themselves and their family, they're the ones who are now experiencing this. And again, we know, I say this on my show here, is what happens in Seattle doesn't stay in Seattle. But the truth can be said about pretty much every Democrat-run city when it comes to the consequences of the policies that they've either pushed on the local level or ended up bringing to the state level. And again, unless you reverse them, you're not going to escape. There was in over the weekend here in Seattle, if you go into Kirkland, Washington, this is the neighborhood that you go to outside of Seattle where you want to be safe. It is a higher end neighborhood. All of a sudden, they end up, a family has an armed robber who shoots at the the, the home while stealing a whole bunch of things and then fleeing. They're doing this all over the place because we have enabled the criminal element. We have created this culture of lawlessness, and lawlessness doesn't stay in one neighborhood or one city. Mm. It spreads. Yeah, it used to be more perhaps segmented where there were areas that you didn't go that were extremely dangerous, but elsewhere you were okay, and some of those elsewheres are becoming less and less okay, to your point. And 
I know that's a familiar story for our listeners in Illinois. We recently had a guest on who's running for state representative, a buddy of mine from college, talking about something that the Democrats passed, party line vote, middle of the night, called the Safety Act, which is, of course, Orwellian. It is everything but anything but safe. And it's crazy. Like it's some of the worst criminal, quote unquote, justice policies in Chicago and applying them statewide in Illinois, including all these restrictions on police and enforcement and all these sort of gifts like bouquets to criminals, making it much easier for them to get back out on the street very, very quickly after offending and offending and offending. And along similar lines, Jason, I saw you had a piece out that I I think I saw on Twitter that is just sort of astounding. The current debate in your state, in Washington state, about yet another giveaway basically to criminals and, you know, shackling the police in terms of what they can and cannot do. This one potentially involving DUI suspects. Talk about what is under debate, under discussion right now in your neck of the woods. Well, and and I thought everyone was pretty much on the side. No matter what you think about policing, we should be going after DUI suspects. We've all kind of settled on that, except in Seattle, because now there's a draft policy that I'm told from multiple sources that is already being implemented, actually. But it basically tells officers that they have to give a pass to DUI suspects. So on the one hand, you're no longer allowed to use the maneuver called pinning, which is just basically parking your vehicle, your patrol car, within an inch of the DUI suspect, making it hard for them to just drive off. Now you have to give a car's length. On top of that, if the person you reasonably suspect to be DUI Even if they're in a stolen car and they just speed away, you are not to chase them. If you find someone who's in a car that is running, dude is passed out with a needle sticking out of his arm, and let's just throw it in. It's a stolen car. You can try to wake him up verbally, but if he doesn't wake up, you're supposed to just leave. This is the world in which we now live in, and this is not unique to Seattle. Why? I'm trying to figure out like what what equity or what justice does this serve? Yeah, so the argument that I've heard, and the police have not given me their argument in this case, but the argument coming from the the left is that when you engage in a high-speed chase, you end up putting other people at risk needlessly. And that that can be true. Not every officer is going to go on a high-speed chase chase. They use their experience. They use the context in which this is occurring before they decide to engage someone in a vehicular pursuit. So if we're saying that at 2 a.m. in the morning when no one's out on the streets, this is where the DUI suspect is going, just home, coming, driving home from a bar, it doesn't seem like there's a huge risk in that context to go ahead and try to stop the, the driver. Well, I just don't understand how it makes it safer or better overall if the plan is, oh, Here's a clearly drunk driver in a stolen car. Let him go. I, I mean, it's it feels like a cartoon universe that you inhabit out there, Jason, sometimes. And I can't believe that this stuff is even being proposed, let alone, you know, written down and maybe backdoor implemented already. Um, I, I know your audience out of KT, uh, KTTH and our audience there, too. Very grateful for all the work that you do shining a light on this. And it'd be one thing if it were just crazy Seattle in that area, but unfortunately it's a lot of other places as well, which is why crime is such a huge issue in, let's say, the Wisconsin Senate race, the Pennsylvania Senate race all over the country. Jason Rance, host of the Jason Rance Show on the aforementioned KTTHR affiliate here as well. Crime correspondent for Tucker, craziness correspondent for us. Jason, always appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. We'll step aside and return right after this short break. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. 
Back here on the Guy Benson Show, there were some interesting moments on the Sunday morning shows yesterday, including Fox News Sunday. Shannon Bream had Stacey Abrams on. We might play some of that audio for Britt Hume coming up in the next hour. But on the CNN Sunday show, State of the Union, Glenn Youngkin, my governor, Republican of Virginia, he was on with Jake Tapper. Jake Tapper asked him a question about energy, and I think that Youngkin really responded well and in a smart way for conservatives to emulate. Cut 22, here's that exchange. But I wonder if the events in your first year as governor, uh, the more intense hurricanes, which uh, scientists say they're more intense because of climate change, the war in Ukraine and this week's OPEC decision, uh, making uh, the insecurity of where we get our fuel from uh, highlighted, doesn't that suggest that you should be, that we should be, leaning into more green energy, not less? Well, to be clear, what, I, what I've called for is an all of the above. And in fact, it's not reducing an emphasis on renewables, wind and solar. It's correcting an error that was made in the previous administration's energy plan, which was to exclude everything else. And so we need to, yes, move forward with wind and solar. We need to move forward with carbon capture and natural gas. We need to move forward with nuclear. And also not completely shut down oil. Right. And those types of emissions, it's not realistic. It's going to be part of our reality for a very long time. And to pretend like that isn't the case actually is harmful. Right. Fossil fuels may not be here forever, but they're here for a good long time. And by the way, the previous administration is referring to is the the Northam McAuliffe crowd, not the Trump administration. He's talking about Virginia specifically, but all of the above. I think that was a very good comeback to the premise of that question on CNN. Britt Hume is straight ahead on The Guy Benson Show. He joins us right after this. Stay with us. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's our middle hour here on the Guy Benson Show, our second of three. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website here. The podcast, always free of charge, always on demand every day when the show is over, just after 6 p.m. Eastern Time. General Jack Keane on the Ukraine latest coming up in our next hour. Before we get to our next guest, a quick Fox News alert to tell you about. With the Dow bouncing around today but ultimately closing down in the red, 93 points down at the bell, ending the day at 29,202. Joining me now is Britt Hume, senior political analyst here at Fox News. And Britt, it's always great to have you here. Thanks, Guy. Glad to do it. Yesterday on Fox News Sunday, Shannon Bream interviewed Stacey Abrams and challenged her on a number of fronts, including her wild claims about the 2018 election, which she's sort of trying to uh, gaslight on and pretend that she didn't call that a stolen election, which she did. And then her fear mongering about voter suppression that has been blown up by the lack of voter suppression in the state of Georgia. And then also her own position, Abrams' own position on abortion, an issue that she has been leaning into and running ads on. And she effectively admitted that she wants no limitations whatsoever on any abortion at all, at any point in the pregnancy, including you know, an elective abortion at 36 weeks. It's to me just absolutely barbaric. Katie Hobbs, who's running for governor out in Arizona, same position. I saw Mandela Barnes got nailed down on this in the 
Wisconsin Senate race. He's also adopted that same position. It just seems to me that in a cycle that the Democrats are really banking on this issue, saving them, a lot of their high-profile nominees around the country are embracing a position, Britt, that is woefully unpopular with most Americans based on really all of the polling. It was probably just a matter of time before Republicans began to figure out that uh, while that issue did appear to be helping Democrats because it motivated so many so many pro-choice women, that the positions that, that some of these candidates had staked out for themselves when it didn't matter, that is to say when, it, when the right to an abortion was still uh, the law of the land under the constitutional Roe versus, under the Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision, uh, that those positions would not hold up very well if exposed to daylight. And they've begun to come back at these candidates to question them about it, to see if they agree to any restrictions. Unrestricted abortion, uh, absolutely unrestricted abortion, is not a popular position in this country. Uh, a distinct majority op- oppose that. So that issue may have begun to even out, which certainly helps the Republicans. James Carville, who tends to have a pretty good sense of things, and he managed to get Bill Clinton elected twice, he often will maybe send a a shot across the bow of his own party or throw some cold water on the latest craze within his party. Carville saying, quote, a lot of these talking about Democratic consultants around the country think if all we do is run abortion spots that we will win, that will win for us. I don't think so. I wonder if anyone might sit up a little straight and listen to James Carville wondering aloud whether or not this all-in-on-abortion plan is actually terribly wise for his party. Well, I would think it would depend to some extent on you know, what positions the candidates in question have staked out on the issue. You know, Stacey Abrams' view, and that which you cited in his other candidates, simply is not popular. And it weakens the issue for the Democrats, which they did not seem to ant- – too many of them didn't seem to anticipate that. So we'll see how this plays out. It's an interesting question, Guy, because when you look at the issue uh, and the issues in the polling, uh, the, the, the major issues that are the highest on everybody's list of things they're worried about favor the Republicans. Um, you look at the quality of the candidates in some cases, yes, you could argue there's some weak candidates on the Republican side, but there are certainly some weak candidates on the Democratic side as well. I mean, John Fetterman comes to mind. He's way out there on the left uh, and in Pennsylvania. Um, Matt Oz may seem to be a somewhat exotic candidate, um, but, you know, he, he's, he was a, uh, he's a retired thoracic surgeon, a man who made a lot of his, something of his life. Fetterman lived at home until he was nearly 50 um, and uh, is not exactly an exceedingly accomplished political figure. So I wonder whether the, the polling on these races reflects the reality. We'll soon find out. Since you brought up the Pennsylvania race, you and I have chatted about it before. I've been focusing on it intently recently. I think the Senate might hinge on it. Control of the Senate might hinge on Pennsylvania. We had Dr. Oz on the show last week. I've never been a huge Dr. Oz fan, but admittedly was very impressed with his performance on this show um, and his familiarity with the issues, his message discipline. Uh, you know, he he did well in my estimation, and I was impressed with his messaging. Here is a piece about that race written by Selena Zito, and she is you know from Western Pennsylvania. This is her backyard. 
And she's got at the Washington Examiner kind of a deep dive into this comeback that Dr. Oz is staging against John Fetterman. The polling still indicates that Oz is down, down three, four, five points. Some uh, polls have him down bigger. But on the ground, people are saying it really feels like an absolute dogfight. And there are two short paragraphs that Zito writes about John Fetterman. To your point, Britt, I just want to read them to you quickly and get your reaction. Fetterman, the son of wealthy York County parents, attended Harvard and lived off his parents' support as the mayor of Braddock until the age of 49. Crime went up. The population shrank dramatically. And the heart of the community, the hospital, closed under his watch. He and the community group he runs, Braddock Redux, were sued 67 times for $30,000 in unpaid taxes and liens on properties they owned in Braddock. I have to say, and I know sometimes blinkered partisans say this kind of thing. It's like, how is it possible that anyone supports this guy and they just don't get out of their bubble very often? I hope I'm not doing that here. I look at John Fetterman's life, his experience, what he has done, what his background is, the absolute phoniness of this whole working man shtick. And I do wonder how is it possible, especially with his views that are way out there on so many of these issues, that he is competitive, let alone at least ostensibly leading in this race uh, in Pennsylvania, Britt. And I wonder if you have a theory on that, if you think that the, the polling lead is, is really a mirage right now, uh, what's your analysis? I know you've got a place in Pennsylvania, so you've been thinking about this race. I have, um, and the commercials in Pennsylvania are just everywhere on this race. Uh, Fetterman is loaded with money. Uh, I just saw something that told me that he'd raised some $22 million in this recent cycle. Um, that's a lot of money, and it matters in these races. But I am I am very eager to see whether the pollsters who had such a lot of trouble in recent cycles uh, have sufficiently adjusted their methods to account for the fact that they have underpolled Republicans consistently over a period of several cycles. This, is a, this extends to a great many pollsters. And remember election night 2020 when it was constantly predicted early in the evening when the results started to come in, the polls were closed, that the Democrats would, would grow their majority in the House of Representatives. The exact opposite happened. They lost seats on 13, something like that. Uh, it was a strikingly wrong prognostication based on the polling. So uh, the question arises, have these pollsters adjusted how they go about trying to get answers from Republicans who I think hang up on them a lot or don't tell them the truth or are shy about saying they were, say, for example, for Trump or whatever? Um, and I think, you know, we see a candidate who, at least on paper, is as weak as Fetterman is, and he's certainly weak, not to mention the fact that he obviously has a major health issue owing to the stroke that he had that, is, that kept him off the campaign train trail for a long time, made him hesitant to debate until long after the voting had begun. Uh, on the, it was the 25th of this month, there'll be a debate. Mm-hmm. So I wonder. It's going to be an interesting time. Maybe they figured this out, and, and, and they have caught the closeness of these contests um, and everybody else is missing. I have my doubts. I do too. And Nate Cohn from the New York Times said 
based on what he's hearing, and he's plugged into this world, he doesn't think that there has been much of an adjustment, if any, from the pollsters and their methods. So will we get another round of surprises on November 8th or November 9th? I guess we'll all find out together. Britt Hume, our guest on The Guy Benson Show, senior political analyst here at Fox. Britt, enjoyed it. Thank you. My pleasure. And The Guy Benson Show continues shortly. Stay with us. As we continue here on The Guy Benson Show, I am Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. I saw an article that was written and then tweeted about quite a lot by Philip Bump, who is technically a journalist at The Washington Post. I think if you talk to Republicans and conservatives in Washington, he's one of those journalists of whom they are most skeptical. They view him as someone who is very eager to repeat the Democratic Party line and to write pieces that align with Democratic interests, with Republicans as the antagonists. And that's generally how he has approached a lot of his work product. In my experience, just watching some of the questions that he asks, that kind of thing, he's a liberal with a press credential. So because Republicans are starting to really gain ground in some of these important races and nationally on the issue of crime because it's resonating – Because it is breaking through as a top-tier issue, of course you had Bump spring into action to try to make it seem like it's problematic or wrong or false for the Republicans to be highlighting it the way that they are. And if you can get a shot in at Fox News at the same time, all the better from his perspective and sort of his allies' perspective. So he wrote the whole piece – about how really if you look at the crime data, it's a very incomplete and uneven story and it's just not accurate to talk about a huge national crime surge or crime spree. And it's fear-mongering to do so. In one of his tweets about this, he said, we don't have good data on crime in the U.S., but that hasn't stopped Fox News from ramping up their coverage as the midterms approach And he gets into how, yes, here at Fox, we have covered the huge issue of crime, which voters say is a top issue. I know that we're the number one network and we tend to do well in the ratings. It's still a fraction of the country watching us. People, especially Democrats living in some of these extremely blue cities, are not identifying crime as a big problem because Sean Hannity is telling them to, okay? Just what an insulting suggestion that is. It also imputes all this power to Fox that I think, look, we definitely have a powerful voice, but we're not magicians where we can just create an entire massive national phenomenon based on nothing. So I responded to the Twitter thread with a small thread of my own, and all I did was go through and clip screenshots of headlines from mainstream media outlets over the last couple of months. Let me read you some of the headlines. This was September. Homicides and overall violent crime up in Philadelphia. Here's one from August. Major crime continues to surge in New York City, up 36% this year per new police data. Here's another one. Chicago records 36% jump in crime as some violent crime drops with thefts and carjackings on the rise. That was this spring. 
ABC7 over the summer. Los Angeles. Homicides in L.A. reached highest level in 15 years during the first half of 2022, per report. If that wasn't enough, I went on with a couple more. Headline, Atlanta homicide rate up for third consecutive year, crime data shows. It jumped 60 percent from 2019 to 2020, then just slightly in 2021. Now this year, the city is outpacing last year's numbers. That's homicide in Atlanta. Here's the ABC affiliate in Houston. Homicide rate in Houston up despite program designed to drive down crime. That was in August. Here's one from last month. Seattle police continue to see alarming rise in homicides and gun violence. So I just rattled off there, what, seven or eight examples based on crime data in major U.S. cities overwhelmingly pointed in the same direction. The overall trajectory is an alarming and disturbing one, which is why people are so concerned about the issue. They aren't being lied to or manipulated by a cable news channel that Democrats and certain journalists can't stand. They are seeing the late local news every night. They are witnessing scary things happening in their closest major city or even in their neighborhoods. In some cases, as some of the violence and crime spills over beyond major urban centers. What was it just a few months ago that the voters of San Francisco? By a large margin, resoundingly through their district attorney, their left wing, effectively pro crime district attorney out of that seat, out of office because of how bad things had gotten in San Francisco. The idea that the voters, the electorate of San Francisco, are just caught up in a mass psychosis and a craze because Fox News told them to is insulting on its face. And yet the storyline from this, quote, journalist at The Washington Post is, well, we don't really have good data and it's sort of thorny and complicated, but that hasn't stopped these Republicans and Fox News from telling people to be scared. This isn't phony fear ginned up by a few viral clips. This is a drumbeat of lived experience in this country, especially in major cities, for the last two and a half years. And a lot of the politicians who were apologizing for crime and looting or looking the other way, justifying some of the violent actions, playing footsie with or completely embracing defund the police and other crazy movements like that back when they felt like that was the zeitgeist out there. Some of those same politicians now are upset that it's being used against them in the 2022 election. The consequences of their words and their policies are being highlighted. It's resonating with people because they feel it. And so they dispatch certain people to go out there and pretend like, oh, we need to fact check this. This this isn't real. This is it's a very murky picture. And it's just, you know, the the scare tactics of Fox News and the Republicans that that are painting an inaccurate portrait of what's really happening. Well, I just gave you more than half a dozen examples in some of the biggest cities in the country. One headline after the next about crime statistics in those localities. And those localities, by the way, I believe every single one of them 
a deep blue city run by Democrats. Oh, it's all a mirage. It's all in your imagination. It's all just Fox News. That's what some people want you to believe. I think voters are a lot smarter than that. And we'll see what they do and how they act and how they vote on November 8th. Somewhere where crime is particularly bad and some of the leadership is typically out to lunch and deflecting is California. I want to focus on that state. Some stories that you need to hear as soon as we come back. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Just past the halfway point on the Monday edition. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast always free every day on demand. I'd like to focus on our nation's largest state for a moment, California. And part of the reason that I think it is worthwhile to spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about California, the state of that state, is because it is kind of the biggest laboratory for progressivism in the country. California is what the left wants the whole country to look like, at least in terms of the types of things that they pursue. That's the dream. One-party rule, all the way down, very left-wing, no checks and balances. A progressive's dream And the man who's leading that state right now, Gavin Newsom, the governor, obviously, at least to my eye, has designs on the presidency. He is acting and talking very much like a man who believes that he will run for president sooner or later, perhaps sooner. And so as long as that is what's happening out there on the left coast, and it's such a significant part of our economy and our culture, it's not like, oh, well, look at. Those dingbats out in California again, isn't that weird? No, I think that there is one cautionary tale after another emanating from the Golden State, which isn't really looking or feeling terribly golden in a lot of places and hasn't for a while. This story over the weekend caught my attention. It's not exactly breaking news. It's this boondoggle, a ludicrous money pit out there known as the High Speed Rail Project, which has been underway for roughly a decade and a half already. And there has been reporting every step of the way on the dysfunction of this project, the failure of this project. So it's not necessarily brand new information, but over the weekend, the New York Times had something of a deep dive on it. When you see a big liberal newspaper write a story about the glaring failures of big liberal government, I think that that is newsworthy unto itself. This wasn't a piece from some conservative or right-wing outlet saying, hey, look at this mess that California has on its hands. Could be completely accurate in every single way, but it might not get in front of the eyeballs of a lot of people who might be persuaded or swayed or moved. I think when you have the New York Times, the supposed paper of record, blowing the whistle, throwing the flag, that's meaningful. And the facts here are just astoundingly bad. Let me read to you from the Times. 
the design for the nation's most ambitious infrastructure project was never based on the easiest or most direct route between Los Angeles and San Francisco. Instead, the train's path out of L.A. was diverted across a mountain range to the rapidly growing suburbs of the Mojave Desert, a route whose most salient advantage appeared to be that it ran through the district of a powerful Los Angeles County supervisor. There's a fun little flare of corruption there. This dogleg through the desert was only one of several times over the years when a project fell victim to political forces that have added billions of dollars in costs and called into question whether the project can ever be finished. The Times is actually speculating openly about whether or not this multi-billion dollar disaster will ever be completed. That sentence fragment made my jaw drop because a lot of the time they just sort of kick the can down the road and they say, oh, there's been delays for these different reasons and the new targeted date is fill in the blank. Now you've got the New York Times suggesting that perhaps, and you hear these whispers in California when people bring it up, the taxpayers on the hook for this, the whispers about this thing never getting completed. The story goes on. The tortured effort to build the country's first high-speed rail system is a case study in how ambitious public works projects can become perilously encumbered by political compromise, unrealistic cost estimates, flawed engineering, and a determination to persist on projects that have become, like the crippled financial institutions of 2008, too big to fail. So, yeah, you've got a lot of politicians and grifters with their fingers in this pie. It's dragged on forever. You've got the state of California where, on one hand, unions sort of rule the roost. On the other hand, so do environmentalists. So every little tiny element of this plan goes under long, excruciating environmental review processes with public comment and red tape and bureaucracy, and it drags on forever. That has been one of the problems afflicting this whole project. The story goes on with kind of the background. These are just the numbers. When California voters first approved a bond issue for the project in 2008, so this was Barack Obama election time, the Democrats were ascendant, the public very unhappy with Republicans at the tail end of the Bush administration. California voters were told, and part of this is just a shame on you situation. They are not to be believed Government bureaucrats, really anywhere, but especially in California, when they come to you saying, we've got this panacea, we're going to do this amazing thing, it's going to be great for the environment, we are leading the way, it is going to be groundbreaking, and we're going to do it here in California, and it'll be done in this amount of time for this cost. If you then as a voter say, okay, great, I believe you, sounds good, I'm voting yes, just be ready for the economic and tax-related consequences coming your way. And boy, have they been flogged over and over again by this decision that they made. So again, it's 2008. The rail line was to be completed by 2020. So basically before the pandemic, two years ago, this thing was supposed to be done, totally complete. You can hop on the train and just zip in a jiffy from San Francisco down to Los Angeles. Isn't this incredible? The cost, this was the estimated cost at first. Back in 2008, which seemed astronomical at the time, as the New York Times admits, was $33 billion, billion with a B, 
$33 billion, and the project would be completely finished by 2020. It was considered, obviously, by the voters who made this decision, as a worthwhile alternative to the state's endless web of freeways and the carbon emissions generated in one of the nation's busiest air corridors. Fourteen years later, construction is now underway on part of a 171-mile starter line connecting a few cities in the middle of California. And that has been promised to be done by 2030. So this is not the project being completed by 2030, and people are seemingly skeptical that they'll even get this done. It is a fraction of the overall project between two cities that you don't necessarily have a ton of people trying to get on a train to travel in between. The whole point was L.A. and S.F. These are different cities, one part of the track, one part of this project, 171 miles of it, starter line, like at the beginning of it, might be done eight years from now, a full decade after the whole thing was supposed to be finished. Few, writes the New York Times, expect it to make that goal. So at this point, even the experts are conceding, the same experts, I'm sure, who are like, oh, this is going to be great. L.A. to San Francisco, completely done, 2020, 33 billion, and we're done. Now they're conceding, well, these two inland cities might get connected by part of the plan by 2030, but probably not. Meanwhile, the story says costs have continued to escalate. It knocked me over with a feather. No kidding. When the California High-Speed Rail Authority issued its new 2022 draft business plan in February, it estimated an ultimate cost as high as $105 billion. Less than three months later, the final plan raised that estimate to $113 billion. The Rail Authority says it has accelerated the pace of construction on the starter system, but at the current spending rate of $1.8 million a day, according to projections widely used by engineers and project managers, the train could not be completed in this century. So to recap, in 2008, the big government party in its biggest big government state told the people of California, if you agree to this, we're going to get you this state-of-the-art train between our two largest cities. It'll be done by 2020. It'll cost, yes, a lot, $33 billion, but it's going to be worth it for the planet. And now here we are roughly a decade and a half later, and they are just really beginning the partial construction of a starter line between two different cities that probably won't even be done by the end of this decade. And the total price tag has ballooned almost quadrupling. I mean, approaching what, $120 billion? These numbers also mean nothing. That it was $33 billion, that it was $105 billion a few months later. Oh, wait, that's not $105 billion anymore. It's $113 billion. Up and up it goes. They're spending $1.8 million a day on this train to nowhere. And people who do this for a living, the actual experts who run the math and do the engineering, they're looking at the pace of construction, how this thing is going down, and they don't believe that they're on pace to finish this project During the current century, the state of California is constantly pushing the envelope for the next big thing. They're now congratulating themselves, patting themselves on the back about how they're going to get rid of fossil fuels and cars can't be 
fueled by oil by a certain date. Isn't this wonderful? Aren't we being so responsible? We are leaders. We're at the cutting edge of progress. They're putting up billboards. Gavin Newsom paying money in red states to advertise abortion in the state of California. Come on out to the West Coast and you can get your abortion here. I know they're discussing this other bill to be a safe haven for trans kids wanting to get life-altering treatment and surgeries without their parents' consent in the state of California. That's what they're focused on, big, crazy, radical culture war issues. While they're pushing further and further on the green stuff, meanwhile, they can't keep the lights on with rolling blackouts. We saw those over the summer. They can't keep their streets safe. Crime, a huge problem across the state of California, and the governor just wants to pretend that it's really a Republican problem because some of the blue cities run by Democrats where crime is out of control worse happen to be located in red states as if the Republican governors are responsible for the local DA and mayor and leadership and what's happening in those blue cities. Like some of the very bluest cities with horrible crime, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and many others in the state of California. So the lights are flickering. Crime is exploding. They've got one of their signature infrastructure slash environmental projects, right? It's like the intersection of two giant left-wing ideals that is uh, roughly 100 years behind schedule. The budget being bloated 3x, 4x already. And at no point is there any sense, it would seem, of the leadership in California, if you want to call it that, taking a step back and saying, you know what, maybe we're biting off way more than we can chew. People are leaving this state for the first time ever. Why might that be? People can't afford to live here anymore. There was a stinging piece in the Los Angeles Times over the weekend about energy costs and how this was a predictable crisis that the Newsom administration and other leaders out there in California knew would be coming, but they've just never really addressed it. They always want big, splashy announcements where they pat themselves on the back and celebrate each other and congratulate one another with light bulbs flashing and a lot of people clapping and leftists around the country saying, see, I wish we could be more like that. And then when the policies actually start to get implemented, it is a debacle over and over again. And never does it seem like these people have a moment of self-doubt. Like maybe before we go on to the next big thing, why don't we try to finish the last one? Before we start lecturing to the rest of the country about how great we are and how benighted, knuckle-dragging weirdos they are, maybe we should get our house in order. Heaven forfend. That's just not how big government operates. And it always seems to be that failures are the fault of not enough government, not enough taxpayer money. Out in this rail project, it's a special confluence of corruption, political back-scratching, environmentalist regulations tangled all over the place. It's like the perfect storm of a California story. And it's so bad that even the New York Times has no choice but to lay it out in blunt, stark language. And yet you have the governor of that state, as I said, looking at all of this happening on his watch and thinking to himself seemingly every day, you know where I belong, the White House. This is their vision. This is their vision for the whole country. Seems like the people of California, it's such a far gone state. There might be some congressional districts, certainly where there are tight races and 
Republicans need to turn out. There's millions of Republicans living in California. They're just massively outnumbered. And I guess from the perspective of progressives and Democrats in California, the whole project is too big to fail. And you can't have Republicans, God forbid. Republicans can't be in charge. It has to be Democrats all the way down. And if the pain gets worse and worse, well, so be it. Such are the wages of being so exquisitely progressive. And I guess the game plan is you stick around if you're rich enough to enjoy it, or you stick around because you're too poor to get out of there, or you get out of there. The latter of which seems like an increasingly attractive option to a growing number of Californians. When we come back, I want to tell you about a story in the largest city in California, Los Angeles, a scandal, a racial scandal in that city exclusively involving Democrats. Details next. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on the Guy Benson Show, we're just talking about California. Well, the biggest city out there, Los Angeles, is in the middle of a big political scandal involving the city council president, a woman named Nuri Martinez. She is a Latina Democrat. They're all Democrats out there. I mean, it's like barely a Republican in sight. Some audio was released in recent days of Martinez, the city council president, making aggressively racist comments about other people. At one point, she's talking about another official and says, bleep that guy. He's with the blacks. This like racial tribalism at its worst. In another part of the rant, this woman commented about a fellow council member's black son referring to him in Spanish as a little monkey, just absolutely racist, textbook racism. So this emerged. She admitted it was her. She explained that she said these things in moments of deep frustration and anger and apologized. And it was unclear if it would go beyond that. I guess the chorus finally got loud enough because earlier today she has now resigned. Of course, she had tweeted about Trump's racism and systemic racism and all this stuff. She said all the things that you're supposed to say as a left winger. And then here she is behind closed doors just making racist comments left and right. And this is just, you know, a small number of them that happened to be recorded once. So I guess she's out. Just another tale from the progressive paradise that is the state of California and the quality of leadership they have out there for the most part. California was once a beacon and a model. It is now the opposite. And I hope voters everywhere else in the country want no part in the Californication of the United States of America. That's a hard pass for me for all sorts of reasons. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up next. General Jack Keane is here on the latest out of Ukraine. Some dramatic developments over the last couple of days. We'll get his analysis when we come back. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's our final hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, that's the show. 
the final hour of those three, 5 to 6 p.m., known as the happy hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Our friends over there, absolutely delectable, really good and refreshing. TheLongDrink.com. We introduced some friends to it for the first time over the weekend, and they were instant fans. TheLongDrink.com for more information about where they're sold as they expand. Always drink responsibly, 21-plus only. Our website here, our online home at The Guy Benson Show, is appropriately enough, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day. You can also follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show on both Twitter and Instagram. Joining us now is General Jack Keane, a retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, and Fox News senior strategic analyst. General, as always, a pleasure to have you here. You're all delighted to be here, Guy, with you and your audience. Well, some seismic-seeming events in Ukraine in the last few days, and overall I would say the landscape of that conflict has shifted pretty significantly since the last time we spoke. Let's start with the news over the weekend. I woke up on Saturday to images of this bridge on fire. A crucial bridge, the Kerch Bridge, had been blown up on Vladimir Putin's birthday, which seemed pretty symbolic, and a lot of people were immediately assessing that this was a pretty devastating blow to Russia and the war effort. Can we just start with that incident, what we know about it, and why it's significant strategically? Yeah, well, the Kirsch Bridge is is a 12-mile span that goes from Russia uh, into Crimea. And prior to that, there was no bridge. And Putin uh, built that bridge and completed it in 2018 after having annexed Crimea uh, with military force in 2014. And by definition, it was a linkage of Russia to Crimea, and I think a symbol very much for Putin, who was there on the inauguration of the bridge opening in 2018, to solidify the testimony that Crimea was really a part of Russia. I know for a fact that the Ukrainians, ever since the war started, guy, were interested in taking this bridge down, largely for the symbolism that's associated uh, with it, and that uh, Russia and Putin personally had so much ownership over it. And so they, they have done just that, although they have not admitted that. And <clears throat> certainly it's going to slow down the supplies, because there's a there's a, a rail portion of the bridge, uh, which is used quite significantly to move military supplies into Crimea and then writ large into Ukraine uh, to support Russian forces. But the bridge will be recovered. Uh, it, it, it's open for car traffic on one of the lanes now. Eventually, the rail line, I think, is beginning to run, if not in a couple of days. And they'll recover the logistics aspect of it, unless Ukraine attacks it again. But the symbolic aspect of it uh, was really quite significant for the for the Ukrainians. And and I, I'm convinced that certainly has an, an enhanced them quite a bit and, and also their people. Not surprising, uh, Putin has retaliated with uh, a series of Uh, rocket, missile, and drone attacks, some 75, 80 of them um, early Monday morning uh, in in Ukraine. He cannot sustain that guy. That's done as in retaliation. Actually, he's running short on precision guided munitions. But 
for our audience to understand, the Ukrainian military is, is on the move, and they have been defeating the Russians and retaking territory. Putin very much aware of the fact that his military is losing, so he's ordered up some replacements, and they'll take some weeks and possibly even months before they could make a difference. In the meantime, uh, Putin has strategically about seven or ten days ago began to move to attack civilian infrastructure, particularly energy targets. He knows will have significant impact if power is lost uh, for the Ukrainian people going into the winter months. So he, he's making a calculation that he, he can't defeat the Ukrainian army right now, but he wants to defeat the Ukrainian people in terms of their support for the war and their steadfastness. I, I don't think he's going to impact that uh, despite his persistence with it, because the Ukrainian people are completely uh, committed to supporting the war and, and, and freeing the other people in Ukraine who are under Russian occupation. Yeah, it seems like a lot of this is about morale back and forth. And the attack, the successful attack on that bridge was, among other things, a humiliation of Putin because of his personal investment in that bridge, the symbolism behind it. And my understanding is, General, that the Russians were sort of boasting that that bridge was not breachable, that it couldn't be attacked. It was protected in all these different ways. And then, of course, it supposedly or presumably the Ukrainians have found a way to do exactly that. That sends, I think, a message directly to Putin. And as you say, I think it's impossible to not connect the dots between what happened on Saturday and then the news that we discovered this morning about this series of attacks against civilian targets. We know that there's a death toll. We know that yet again civilians have been targeted and killed by the Russian military in these strikes. Is this basically just sort of a tantrum response from Putin having been embarrassed over the weekend? Yeah, well, the, the size of it is that because he can't sustain that because he has shortage of precision guided munitions. He's borrowing drones from from others as well. But he is going to continue the attack on civilians and on particularly civilian infrastructure, energy infrastructure, uh, because he wants to wear them down. Um it won't be on the on the scale we've seen uh, today, but it'll be persistent. It's what he's been doing for the last seven or ten days, when he realized that it's going to have to. He's going to have to wait weeks to stop the bleeding uh, due to the Ukrainian offensive movements against uh, his forces and defeating his forces and retaking territory. So this is what he's doing in the meantime, as he's waiting for these replacements to come. Do you think it's possible for the Ukrainians to hit the bridge again? Yes, I definitely think it's possible. I mean, certainly uh, the bridge, uh, traffic on that bridge is going to be slowed down because they're likely going to be, be checking vehicles uh, going across the bridge. But listen, the, uh, the Ukrainians are very adaptable. They've got lots of imagination, and they their determination is extraordinary. I met with the the U.S., uh, the Ukrainian ambassador to the U.S. on Friday and her defense attache, and I've, I've been with her before, but not with him. And it is he's a major general, and he's very actively involved in helping to get American equipment in, into the war. 
And their steadfastness uh, and determination and resolve, uh, you, you can't help but be inspired around them. Uh, yeah, they they are determined, and uh, and they they are completely committed to defeating Russia and retaking all of their of their territory. And they are they are about that. And yeah, so I'm, I'm convinced if there's if there's an opportunity for them to do it again, they'll they'll certainly take advantage of it. General Keene, on the show last week, we interviewed H.R. McMaster, former national security advisor under President Trump. And one of the issues that we tackled and that I asked him about were these reported comments from President Biden at a Democratic fundraiser about Putin and nuclear weapons and the possibility of, quote, Armageddon being higher than it has been in decades. And McMaster called those comments very unwise. We've seen other people criticizing him as well about saying anything like that or kind of riffing at of all places, a political fundraiser. And of course, the the readout came out and that got a lot of attention as the world is sort of on edge based on what's happening in Ukraine with the Russians, other threats elsewhere. I just wonder what you think of a commander in chief going to, you know, an expensive dinner with partisans and casually, even flippantly invoking the possibility of nuclear Armageddon. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's pretty irresponsible, and I and I think knowing the president like we do and watching him publicly, I mean, he does have a tendency to dramatize things and exaggerate things uh, for effect, and and likely that's what was taking place here, and and knowing that, uh, well, he didn't think his remarks were going to become public. I think we, anybody in the public arena knows full well that if you're speaking to somebody probably other than your wife in, in any any place other than your home, uh, you're likely going to be picked up. And, and he certainly has those years of experience to be guarded about what he's saying. But, you know, so here we have it's transmitted all around the world, and you get people spun up uh, as, a re, as a result of it. When really, I mean, if, I mean guy, if he believed that, uh, that we are that close, uh, to uh, Putin using a nuclear weapon when there's no evidence to support that. Uh, if he believes that, then he should be talking to the American people in a public address about a serious existential threat that this country has not faced in decades. And I also think he should go to the Congress of the United States and get legislation passed. It would likely pass without a single vote of opposition in both houses, you know, condemning Putin uh, for threatening the United States and uh, threatening the world this way, not just the United States, implication, the United States. And also he should be working as allies and partners to make certain there is a deterrence here. And we don't have any indication of any of that taking place. Uh, so, yeah, I, it, it's irresponsible uh, at a minimum and, and unfortunate that, that as a result of those comments, the entire world had to deal with uh, with this issue and wonder once again, what does the president mean? Right. right. Whether he was talking about regime change and Putin has to go when he gave that speech, I believe, in Poland, if I recall correctly. And then the many things he said about Taiwan versus China and the walkbacks from the White House. Here's just some loose talk about nuclear Armageddon. And you had some cleanups after that as well. And it's just time after time with the president of the United States on very weighty geopolitical issues 
And I think your point is well taken. Last question, and it, it does relate to China as well. We told the story on this show last week of a vote at the UN Human Rights Council, which I view as an absolute embarrassing joke and a disgrace of an organization. The United States is part of it. Trump pulled us out, I think correctly. Biden put us back into the Human Rights Council. There was a vote last week on whether or not to even begin a discussion, debate, investigation into China's genocide in Xinjiang against the Uyghur minorities. And you had a bunch of countries refuse to vote. They just abstained. And of the remaining countries, a slim majority voted with China to shut this down. The reason I bring it up, General, is because let's say China does something, again, extremely provocative or does something militarily uh, that's outrageous and some sort of provocation or, or worse. It seems like the Chinese government has spent a lot of money developing a lot of allies in the United Nations who are going to be willing to carry water for them no matter what they do. And I feel like that probably has some national security implications as we start to think about the Chinese threat moving forward and some of the global institutions that seem, frankly, deeply compromised by China. Yeah, there's no doubt, no doubt about it. I mean, the vote was 19 to 17. And what they were really, what was on the table was an investigative report conducted by the U.N. that had indicated that what was taking place uh, with the Uyghurs, and they had documented the evidence, uh, was in, indeed uh, a form of genocide and, and needed to be uh, discussed. So that what was on the table was to discuss this report, right. not to conduct an investigation, just to discuss it. And and the vote was 19 to 17 against. Yes. I mean, the Human Rights Council, and given who's on it, and given the fact that uh, they would walk away from this kind of important discussion where a country is doing something that's so devastating uh, to a group of people uh, is extraordinary. And, and I think we should pull out of the Human Rights Council. President Trump was absolutely right in doing it. That to participate in something like that, which which clearly lacks values and it and it and it's so hypocritical. Human Rights Council is right. the name of it. And they're not willing to discuss the number one place in the world where human rights are being violated. Uh it is sad to say uh there was six uh, Muslim countries, uh, you know, that we know very well, that chose not to vote for that discussion. I mean, that also was outrageous, and it shows you the influence that China has. I mean, they yeah. lobbied very strongly here, Guy, for this vote to go in their favor, and, and indeed it did. And people did it I'm, because of China's bullying of them and the influence that they have over them. I think that's exactly right. You had a country, for example, like Pakistan and a host of other majority Muslim countries that weren't willing to even vote to begin a conversation about documented genocide against Muslims inside China because of the influence peddling, the influence buying, the coercion of China. And if they're willing to throw their weight around on something like this, 
if, God forbid, there's some sort of military confrontation down the line, it looks like there are going to be a lot of votes in that body broadly bought and paid for already. And I think it's just something we have to be clear-eyed about in the United States and in the West. General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War and Fox News senior strategic analyst here on The Guy Benson Show. General, we always enjoy having you. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, you're welcome. Have a great week. Thank you. You too. And we'll be right back after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. And it was unhappy hours in Queens last night as the Mets got bumped out of the playoffs by the San Diego Padres in a best two out of three home series for the Mets and the Padres, except for game two, just dismantled them. And I'm not a Mets fan, but I'm also not a Mets hater. I'm a Yankees fan, and I have friends who are diehard Mets fans, and I don't want to pour salt in the wound beyond what these folks are already feeling. It was just one of the more memorable and shocking collapses that I can think of in recent memory in Major League Baseball. The huge division lead that they squandered and then out before they even get to the divisional series, that's rough. And I know some Yankee fans who don't like the Mets are out there high-fiving. I'm like, well, be careful. See what the Yankees do, where their series, the divisional series, starts on Tuesday against Cleveland. So I'm nervous based on the way the Yankees played a lot of the second half of the season. But baseball playoffs, man, it's intense. The chill is in the air. I'm looking forward to it, no matter what happens. And, oh, by the way, I'm going down to Atlanta to broadcast from our affiliate Extra toward the end of the week, and I've been told that there might be some tickets for a Braves game for yours truly. So not mad about that at all. More details on that as the week progresses. On The Guy Benson Show, the happy hour continues next. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour. In case you missed it earlier here on the program, we welcome back Britt Hume, senior political analyst here at Fox News, talked about the midterms and some of the dynamics there. Here's a taste of my conversation with Britt Hume. It just seems to me that in a cycle that the Democrats are really banking on this issue, saving them, a lot of their high-profile nominees around the country are embracing a position, Britt, that is woefully unpopular with most Americans based on really all of the polling. It was probably just a matter of time before Republicans began to figure out that uh, while that issue did appear to be helping Democrats because it motivated so many so many pro-choice women, that the positions that, that some of these candidates had staked out for themselves when it didn't matter, that is to say when, it, when the right to an abortion was still uh, the law of the land under the constitutional Roe versus, under the Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision, uh, that those positions would not hold up very well if exposed to daylight. And they've begun to come back at these candidates to question them about it, to see if they agree to any restrictions. Unrestricted abortion, uh, absolutely unrestricted abortion is not a popular position in this country. Uh, a distinct majority op- oppose that. So that issue may have begun to even out, which certainly helps the Republicans. James Carville, who tends to have a pretty good sense of things, and he managed to get Bill Clinton elected twice, he often will maybe send a, a shot across the bow of his own party or throw some cold water on the latest craze within his party. Carville 
saying, quote, a lot of these talking about Democratic consultants around the country think if all we do is run abortion spots that we will win, that will win for us. I don't think so. I wonder if anyone might sit up a little straight and listen to James Carville wondering aloud whether or not this all in on abortion plan is actually terribly wise for his party. Well, I would think it would depend to some extent on you know, what positions the candidates in question have staked out on the issue. You know, Stacey Abrams' view, and that which you cited in his other candidates, simply is not popular. And it weakens the issue for the Democrats, which they did not seem to ante- – too many of them didn't seem to anticipate that. So we'll see how this plays out. It's an interesting question, Guy, because when you look at the issue uh, and the issues in the polling – uh, the, the the major issues that are at the highest on everybody's list of things they're worried about favor the Republicans. Um, you look at the quality of the candidates in some cases, yes, you could argue there's some weak candidates on the Republican side, but there are certainly some weak candidates on the Democratic side as well. I mean, John Fetterman comes to mind. He's way out there on the left uh, and in Pennsylvania. Um, Mehmet Oz may seem to be a somewhat exotic candidate. Um, but you know he he's, he was a uh, he's a retired thoracic surgeon, a man who made a lot of his something of his life. Fetterman lived at home until he was nearly fifty, um, and you know, is not exactly an exceedingly accomplished political figure. So I wonder whether the the polling on these races reflects the reality. We'll soon find out. Since you brought up the Pennsylvania race, you and I have chatted about it before. I've been focusing on it intently recently. I think. The Senate might hinge on it. Control of the Senate might hinge on Pennsylvania. We had Dr. Oz on the show last week. Uh, I've never been a huge Dr. Oz fan, but admittedly was very impressed with his performance on this show um, and his familiarity with the issues, his message discipline. Uh, you know, he he did well in my estimation, and I was impressed with his messaging. Here is a piece about that race written by Selena Zito. And she is, you know, from Western Pennsylvania. This is her backyard. And she's got at the Washington Examiner kind of a deep dive into this comeback that Dr. Oz is staging against John Fetterman. The polling still indicates that Oz is down, down three, four, five points. Some uh, polls have him down bigger. But on the ground, people are saying it really feels like an absolute dogfight. And there are two Short paragraphs that Zito writes about John Fetterman, to your point, Britt, I just want to read them to you quickly and get your reaction. Fetterman, the son of wealthy York County parents, attended Harvard and lived off his parents' support as the mayor of Braddock until the age of 49. Crime went up, the population shrank dramatically, and the heart of the community, the hospital, closed under his watch. He and the community group he runs, Braddock Redux, were sued 67 times for $30,000 in unpaid taxes and liens on properties they owned in Braddock. I have to say, and I know sometimes blinkered partisans say this kind of thing. It's like, how is it possible that anyone supports this guy and they just don't get out of their bubble very often? I hope I'm not doing that here. I look at John Fetterman's life, his experience what he has done, what his background is, the absolute phoniness of this whole working man shtick. And I do wonder how is it possible, especially with his views that are way out there on so many of these issues, 
that he is competitive, let alone at least ostensibly leading in this race uh, in Pennsylvania, Britt. And I wonder if you have a theory on that, if you think that the the polling lead is is really a mirage right now. Uh, what's your analysis? I know you've got a place in Pennsylvania, so you've been thinking about this race. I have, um, and the commercials in Pennsylvania are just everywhere on this race. Uh, Fetterman is loaded with money. Uh, I just saw something that told me that he'd raised some $22 million in this recent cycle. Um, That's a lot of money, and it matters in these races. That full interview with Britt Hume, available online at GuyBensonShow.com. Also on the free podcast, the whole show, every day, no charge to you, on demand, after the show is over, which is just a few minutes from now. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back... How was the red-eye experience for producer Christine flying back to the East Coast from California? And then I spent some time with a different member of our team over the weekend. Christine, I think, had a little bit of FOMO. We'll get to all of that when we return. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch here on this Monday. It's the Guy Benson Show. Welcome back. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Our podcast is always free every day. So as regular listeners are aware, we spent the week last week in California out at Stanford and the Hoover Institution had a great week of shows. And then Friday, we got off the air, went to the airport, Christine and I together. We spent a lot of time at the airport because we had evening flights, red eyes back home, and we got dinner Then we went to the United Club, and they have an open bar there, which I knew would be a little bit dangerous with Christine. And she had a few drinks, then a few more, and then started to become very good friends with so many people inside the United Club. Then she boarded her flight. I sort of poured her onto the plane, and it was back to New Jersey. And, Christine, I know those overnight flights can be difficult. Did you get to sleep were you bright-eyed and bushy-tailed when you landed? Uh, that's a complete negative, Guy Benson. Not only – I think I may have slept 20 minutes the entire flight. Oh, oh boy. It was brutal. First of all, I picked a seat, unbeknownst to me, that leaned up to a wall. So mm. – because it was the middle of the plane. I didn't think anything of it, and that wall was the bathroom. So not only could I not recline, uh, I heard everybody in and out of the bathroom. Every flush. Every flush. Every noise. Um, And the guy next to me had some sort of allergy going on. I felt like I was sitting next to Dan. It was nonstop sneezing, which I couldn't take. And then two rows ahead of me wasn't a baby. It was a kid screaming from the time we took off to the time we landed. And the parents did nothing. Not even tried to walk the kid, nothing. So, wow. needless to say, I got off the flight and vowed to never, ever, ever, ever take a red eye again. Uh, got a few hours of sleep and then off to Hershey Park with the family we went for the weekend. Well, and did you get- also start to develop a hangover in the middle of this flight, perhaps? Oh, you thought that was a lot that I drank? I mean, it was a fair amount. Yeah, no. No. <laughs> no. That was, that was, it barely had any effect? No, I thought that was going to just put me to sleep, to be honest. And it probably would have. I mean, 
Yeah, I did some damage at the United Club, I could say. And I met, by the way, we met a lovely, lovely guy at the club. He was so nice, huge fan of Fox. We yeah, exchanged information. Fan. I believe I'm going to meet up with him when he gets to New York. Uh, I got to tell Bobby about that. Um, but yeah, I don't think you make enough friends when you're there. You just are going to sit there and like be on your phone or work, work, work. But that's time to like chat people up. Mm. I don't know. I feel like I kept to myself. I had a few drinks. I watched some of the baseball playoffs at the club. Then I got on my flight. And so you didn't hear about this. I had gotten a very good deal for a first class seat so I could lie flat. Because I knew I was going to need to sleep as much as possible on the flight back because we were, like, co-hosting a huge block party slash Oktoberfest, i.e. Blocktoberfest, the very next day. So I needed to be well-rested. I could not have had the situation that you did. So I had paid, like, hundreds of extra dollars. It was still a pretty good deal. Nevertheless, for a lie-flat seat, I get in the seat, malfunction, wouldn't lie flat. <gasps> Wouldn't lie flat. So I very politely called the flight attendant over, and he confirmed that it was broken. Now, it was going back pretty far. There was just, like, other parts of the mechanics that weren't working. And so they've credited me some money. I'm in the process, politely for now, of requesting a larger credit based on the scope of this failure, which they completely concede happened, like – you pay for that kind of seat, and if you don't get it, then what's the point? That is the entire reason I spent the money was to be able to sleep like on a bed and sleep through the flight. Now, the good news is I'm very good at sleeping on planes, and because it lay back a fair amount, I was able to sort of twist myself into a position where I was mostly lying down, and I slept for probably three and a half to four hours of the flight. So – That's not too bad. I got home. I napped again and then sort of rebooted for the day. And the people started arriving at noon. I think the final people left the final elements inside, you know, the post party at the house at around midnight. So it was 12 hours of festivities, including kegs and all this other stuff. It was really fun. The weather was beautiful, chilly but perfect, I think, for that type of event. And, Christine, I know that you were – kind of wishing that you were there, especially when you found out that your best friend, Wyatt, was invited and came to Blocktoberfest. Are you jealous? Are you still jealous? Uh, Yeah, just a little bit. I didn't know why it was invited. I didn't know why it was going. I feel like this group of best friends is leaving out information. I mean, I was with you every single day for a week, and you never told me that part. Well, it just sort of slipped my mind. And You and I had spent so very much time together (laughs) for five or six days in a row. I thought it was just, you know, fine to maybe have YY come over and spend a little bit of time. And there was a good crowd. There were bounce houses that Wyatt did not participate in, sadly. There was a face painter, very elaborate face painting, and I was urging Wyatt to get his face painted. I was going to do it myself, except I had media buzz the next day, and I felt like Howie Kurtz might (laughs) frown upon like me with a giant dragon face. But I was thinking about getting like a little pony tattoo like a teardrop, you know, to to represent you know who. I was thinking about doing that and I was asking Wyatt if he would do it and for some reason he just wouldn't. He was probably just bitter that there were no balloon animal people there. 
where he could sort of judge them from afar and sort of neg their work product given his own background, very lucrative background in the balloon arts. But why did you have a nice time? Was it fun? Yes, it was a lot of fun, Guy. Thank you for, for the invite. And uh, and I, I, I'm upset that Christine didn't come. Christine, well, let's not get carried away. Christine, I do have an update, though, on something that we did talk about. So I had given you, again, against my better judgment, our Christmas party date that we have circled on the calendar for our big Christmas party that we host every year and have for years. It's a very fun tradition. You know what the date is. We reached out to the caterer over the weekend just to say, like, hey, this is the date. You know, can we get a proposal like we get every year? We had last year's one up just to sort of get a sense of ballpark, what it would cost. They got back to us today. In fact, just during the commercial break, like 10 minutes ago, Adam texted me. They are asking for a minimum spend this year that is more than double (gasps) what we have spent in the last couple of years. Like, add, add a zero. Like, add a zero to this. It's crazy. And I still don't really want to believe that they're going to throw us overboard if we're not going to double our spending with them. But I don't know. Maybe this is their response to inflation and just sort of what they can manage or not manage and saying we're only going to take on really huge projects with huge dollar amounts. And if this is what they're going to stick to, like, we cannot use them. We will have to make a new plan or find a new caterer or not have the event catered or or something because I'm just – I'm sort of shell-shocked here. I'm more than taken aback, and I'm hoping we can get this resolved. I I can resolve this right now. Oh, no. I'll do it. No. I I make a very good Christmas tree charcuterie in the shape of the tree – I could like make it for the centerpiece of the party. Little hot dogs, little meatballs. Um, we could do like I could be a shot girl. Oh, that could be fun. I make a homemade pineapple vodka that will blow the guest away. I just let's talk about this. I don't think you need them. I, I really don't. We we'll work this out, but I, I'll do it. Don't worry. You're welcome. Uh, that was not what I was hoping for here. And that is very kind. Of course, I'm not going to take your offer to the bank, even if I were interested, because I remember when a certain someone offered to make jello shots for a summer party a few years ago, then didn't show up. And that was like you had one job and didn't do that, let alone taking over the entire responsibility for food and beverage. Absolutely not. But I was hoping for a little bit more, uh, I don't know, sympathy here, outrage that they're, they're trying not, to double the prices? They're not going to do this to you. First of all, you are a repeat client. Oh, a- another thing I could do. Do you want me to call them and talk to them? You know, that's not the worst idea, come to think of it. Maybe if we have to really unleash, like if they're being intransigent and our – if they're not budging oh, okay. with me or with Adam, maybe we can get, uh, you know, Cookie on the on the horn and see how quickly they – you know, crumble and and cave. Although maybe this is just like, I don't know, new management or they've they've looked at the books. They're saying, nope, you got to spend a fortune with us or we're not going to do your party. And we just don't have a fortune to spend on this party. Yeah, oh, I'm getting stressed out about this. 
and we're out of time. We're out of time, and now I'm going to leave on a stressful note. It's also like the world's smallest violin ever. Like, oh, no, the cost of a Christmas party is going up. Well, I mean, it's just Grinch. It's Grinch-like tactics from the company if they hold their ground. I'm not going to mention them. I'm not going to put them on blast. We're going to try to work it out diplomatically. Just keep your fingers crossed, and we will keep you updated on this extremely important breaking story. Uh, Here on The Guy Benson Show, back tomorrow, same time, same place. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great night. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.